The following message is entitled, True Teachers, Confronting Quitting, Confronting Error, Part 5. This message was given during the morning service on February 19, 2023, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. I continue 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3-7, to 7, as we continue this first Priority of any Bible-believing church that's in your note sheet, priority number one. The entire first chapter of 1 Timothy deals with this priority. God wants true teachers and pure doctrine in our churches. This is countercultural to the church today. Everything we learn in these three epistles is going against, going upstream against the state of the church today where doctrine and Bible teaching and preaching is considered outmoded. And most churches are turning to music, entertainment, Supposed miraculous sign gifts. And this is not what the Word of God teaches. So I am reminding us all and helping all of us to realize that we need to stay the course and do what's right regardless. In this series, then, to outline this first point in your note sheet, the church was founded by Christ and the Apostles. Verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We learned about the apostles, Timothy. We learned about the power sources, the power sources of the Holy Spirit working through grace, mercy, and peace. And now we come in verses 3 to 7 with your Roman numeral 2, and we come to confronting false doctrine and promoting true doctrine. And this includes the issue of quitting. Can't confront false doctrine and promote true doctrine without dealing with the issue of quitting. Now, I've been spending the last two Sunday sermons, the last two sermons in this series, dealing with some introductory statements. They're not listed there for you. I'll just repeat them. You can put them under Roman numeral 1. You've got three lines. Just to recap what we've already learned, starting in verse 3, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain out at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. He's begging Timothy to remain. He's begging Timothy to not quit. So we can't confront error and we can't promote true doctrine in churches if godly Christians and leaders quit. Three introductory statements frame verses 3 to 7 then. Statement number one is quitting has to be confronted. You can write that in the first line under Roman numeral 1. Quitting has to be confronted among teachers and Christians. Quitting has to be confronted. Quitting has to be confronted, but our society and the church, that statement is flipped into, I would rather quit than confront. See the difference? Quitting has to be confronted, but in the church and in society, that statement is perverted into, I'd rather quit than confront. That's the sad history of our culture, and that's the sad history of the church. Most Christians get into conflict, or they seethe under the surface, and then rather than deal with it, they just quit. Paul is telling us quitting has to be confronted among true teachers and Christians. Many believers in our churches believe I'd rather quit than confront. No wonder we're such a mess. 
Second line under Roman numeral one, second statement we've learned is false teaching has to then be exposed. These points are sequential. You have to deal with confronting, quitting, then you expose false teaching. It has to be removed from every single Bible-believing church, mission, Bible school, and media organization. For truth to prevail, you have to get the cancer out. False teaching has to be exposed. When the church doesn't believe that false teaching is any big deal, that it's not terminal, and that it is not deadly to churches, missions, Bible schools, and organizations that are media-driven, then there's no hope for truth to prevail. First line, quitting must be confronted. Second one, false teaching must be exposed. Thirdly, then and only then, biblically accurate truth is promoted. Thirdly, on a third blank line under Roman numeral one, then and only then can biblically accurate truth be promoted. So our leaders commit to enduring suffering for truth and not quitting. They proactively attack false teaching in their ministry contexts, and then they promote accurate teaching. You can imagine how churches die under that context. I hope you can realize how that happens. Because in an apostate day and age, where, as we saw in Sunday school in Matthew 13, where tares are infiltrating the wheat and false believers are infiltrating the structure of the church, you can understand that anyone who takes a stand, endures suffering for truth, confronts false teaching, and biblically promotes biblically accurate truth, you can understand that those type of individuals will be in churches executed, metaphorically, driven out, or they get discouraged and they quit. Can't do any of this in chapter 1 without confronting Timothy to remain. It's the hinge of the entire first chapter. If Timothy doesn't remain, who's going to confront? Right? Quitting is the topic to lead off the kind of church God wants. Quitting has to be confronted in your heart and in mine. It is poison. Quitting is the opposite of endurance. Endurance is a spiritually godly commodity in virtue. Quitting is not. Quitting is everywhere. As I said last week, quitting is endemic to our culture and the church today. If you want to know what the foundation of quitting is, it's very simple. You know it and I know it. It's a feeling of discouragement or hopelessness. It doesn't do any good, so I'll just quit. Feeling of discouragement or hopelessness in whatever situation one is in, either in society or in the church. Ours is a society that breeds quitting because of the lies, evil, and worthless counsel of our country's officials and leaders. Here's an example. Chicago community activist Andrew Holmes, who's appeared in almost every violence news bite in our city on the news over the past few years, coming seemingly out of nowhere, Andrew Holmes, community activist. He claims to have answers for all the violence in Chicago, and his answers have nothing whatsoever. He's got a billboard that is popping up all over the city that I guess he's promoted, Anthony Holmes. There's one on 95th Street, just west of Paxton, going west on 95th Street. Interestingly, it shows a double portrait of him on it. I mean, I don't know what that's all about. Why you got to put two pictures of yourself on one billboard? That strikes me as funny. But be that as it may, 
On this billboard, he claims to have the answer for the violence in our city. The billboard says this, and I quote, Stop the violence now. Lock up your guns. End quote. And one of the two self-portraits has him smiling, holding a gun lock in his hands. It would almost be laughable if it wasn't so frightening. He's telling us on his billboard that gun locks are the key to stopping 100,000 known gang members in our city from wreaking havoc. Chicago Crime Commission estimates that there's at least 100,000 gang members in our city. And, and so Anthony Holmes says we need to tell the gangbangers to lock up their guns. Oh, they'll do that. When you read that, what is the result of such nonsense? Discouragement and hopelessness. These officials have no clue because they're godless. So they just keep shouting their worthless slogans into the wind. And what does such hopelessness among our political leaders lead to? Quitting. Continual and mass exodus from the city and discouragement. Why should we even vote for a mayor? They're all lying reprobates anyways. But verse 3 isn't about the city, the jerks. It's not about Chicago. I know, it's called the city that works. That was a play on words I gave you. The city that jerks. It's not about Chicago. It's about the church in verse 3. Bible-believing churches. Bible is our middle name, Eastside Bible Church. The same problem of quitting from discouragement and hopelessness can happen in Bible-believing churches, even among growing godly leaders and Christians. That's the problem in verse 3. Why is he begging Timothy to remain and not quit at Ephesus? Because wicked, fake believers who have no use for the word of God being central and expect something more than God's word to make a success out of their miserable lives wreak havoc in churches like Timothy's at Ephesus. And churches that refuse to compromise, leaders like Paul and Timothy who refuse to compromise, are seen as worthless by fake Christians. And false Christians and fakes either permanently tune out the message handed to them by godly Christians like Timothy. They tune the message out and pointlessly stay in the church or they go to another looking for the magic bullet in another church to heal them of their idolatry. The problem is wickedness in the pews of the Ephesian church is driving Timothy to want to quit. That is the basic quitting issue. Timothy is discouraged and hopeless. And this is all through the church for the last 2,000 years. Godly leaders, true believers, godly leaders and Christians who promote God's word as the only key to successful Christian living. They see it rejected by so many in their churches. And when that happens, the godly think it's pointless to continue to preach and war against heresy and apostasy, so they quit. Or they're tempted to quit due to discouragement and hopelessness. It's the same thing. It's a fatal last days combination that's just like Anthony Holmes. The godless think the word is worthless and they tune it out in our churches. The godly see the word isn't working among believers and they're tempted to quit seeing no power. 
The godly first leave, followed by heretics who come in. Whereas Anthony Holmes' message is worthless, lock up your guns, that'll stop 100,000 gang members from wreaking havoc. That's a worthless message. God's word is not worthless. The message is not worthless. It's supposed to be proclaimed no matter what. History is repeating itself in the last day's church, just as in Jeremiah's day. Go over to Jeremiah 15. What Paul is commanding Timothy is what God commanded Jeremiah. When you have an apostate people, godly leaders want to cut and run. They're tempted to do this. No one's listening. I'm getting out of here. That's the idea. Turn to Jeremiah 15. Just to show you that the parallel is frightening in its similarity. Jeremiah is ready to bail. Jeremiah 15, verse 15. Jeremiah is praying to God. You who know, O Lord, remember me, take notice of me. Verse 15, Jeremiah 15, 15. And take vengeance for me and my persecutors. He's being persecuted in the nation of Israel. He's a prophet to the people, and the people are nailing him. Talking to God, he says, Do not, in view of your patience, take me away. Know that for your sake I endure a reproach. He's praying that he would not be taken in judgment, surrounded by evil people. He's struggling greatly. Notice he is enduring reproach. At this point in verse 15, he is not quitting. He is on the edge. Endurance is the opposite of quitting. Do you see that in verse 15? He's enduring reproach among God's people. That's what Timothy is in the Ephesian church. He's enduring reproach. He continues talking to God, verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them. He knows, being a godly leader and Christian, or believer, not a Christian, but a believer, he knows that the source of his spiritual success is returning to the word of God. So he, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. He teaches what I've taught. That's 1 Peter 1, 7 right there in verse 16, that joy is in God's word and in our salvation, not in the reproaches of men. We rejoice in our salvation in the word of God, even while we're suffering. That's what he's doing right there. And he finds his joy comes from obedience to the word of God. And it's a delight to his heart or mind in verse 16. And he affirms with assurance that he's a true believer. For I've been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. He talks about separation. He's a godly leader then. It is enduring a reproach. He's hungering for the word. He has joy in the word and in God. He has assurance of salvation, verse 16. And then he talks about his behavior to God. I did not sit. This is separation. I did not sit in the circle of merrymakers because this, the city and the nation is given over to judgment and apostasy. It's not a time to party. He's separated out from merrymakers who seem to be parting off as the city is falling and the nation's falling to conquer. So he said, I did not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult. Because of your hand upon me, I sat alone. The discouragement of being true to the word, surrounded by apostates, creates loneliness and anger, for you filled me with indignation. Now he starts to question God again. He reached the high point in verse 16 where he has joy. Now he crashes in verse 18. Why has my pain been perpetual? He's talking about enduring reproach, not physical pain. 
Why do we have to put up with this suffering constantly, is what he's saying. Now he's turning on God slightly. He's turning on God and questioning God, what he's doing in verse 18. Why has my pain been perpetual and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? There's no way out for these sufferings. These apostate people won't listen to the word. And he reaches the all-time low point spiritually in the book of Jeremiah right here, right now in verse 18. He slanders God Almighty in verse 18. Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream? He just called God a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable. Is that what you are? You're a stream in the desert that's just a mirage. You claim to be the waters of life and you aren't. This is a godly man who is crashing and burning emotionally and spiritually. He sees God as deceptive and unreliable. Now God has not talked at all from 15 to 18, but when a leader starts talking like this, a prophet anyways, God steps in and confronts. Verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, oh wait, in return, that's the opposite of verse 15, enduring. He's quit. He's quit. Calling God deceptive and unreliable, he's at it, he's done with preaching. He's like Jonah, and he's angry like Jonah. He's angry at the end of verse 17. Godly leaders who end up quitting are extremely angry at the state of those that they were ministering to. Though Jonah wasn't godly, he is here. So God says to him now, if you return, then I will restore you. If you stop quitting, he's telling, he's telling Jeremiah, literally in the Hebrew, to turn back from his renunciation of God and of his giving up. Then I will restore you. So he has to stop quitting. He has to return to endurance for God to help him. Before me you will stand, and if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. That's basically God saying you need to go back to the word in verse 15, which is precious, and extract from your mind the worthless that you just said in verse 18 about me. What he said about God is absolutely worthless, calling God a deceptive stream. God's not to blame for the apostasy in the nation, but he always gets to blame, doesn't he? In Israel or in the church, when things go bad, what are you doing, God? So he says you need to extract the precious from the worthless. And then God uses a Hebrew play on words. Plays off the word turn. They, for their part, verse 19, they, for their part, may turn or lift up to you. But as for you, you must not turn or drag yourself down to them. The Hebrew play on words of the Hebrew turn. So literally it reads like this. They for their part may come up to you. In other words, up to your standard of truth in a confrontation of their sin. But for you, as for you, you must not drag down to them. Collapse into their evil and quit. All this is about being surrounded by people who claim to be God's chosen people, and yet they're apostates, and one leader, Jeremiah, who's had enough and he wants to quit. It is exactly the same in 1 Timothy 3, or chapter 1, verse 3. Go back over there then. 
It's the same in Jeremiah's day. It's the same in Paul and Timothy's day in the Ephesian Bible-believing church. And it's the same as today. The godly are tempted to quit when faced with false belief in their midst. And what Jeremiah is told by God and what Paul is telling Timothy, remember, Jeremiah was told by God, you need to extract what is precious, the word of God, and try to continue to raise them up. There's doubt in the Hebrew. They may come to you, no guarantee. I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen, Jeremiah. They may lift up and repent. God is not in the business of telling us what will happen to the future of our ministries because we're true to him. So Jeremiah was told by God to continue preaching the word. And here in verse 3, God through Paul is saying, Remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct. Same exact thing. So it is today. We're in a dark day. The condition of the church is exactly parallel to the condition of Israel at the Old Testament in the time of Jeremiah. Fewer and fewer Jeremiahs and preachers are willing to stay true to the word. Christians want something more, something else, other than the word of God taught to them at churches. It's a wicked society that has rejected Christ, rejected the gospel, and rejected the word of God. And even if the word of God does not seem to have an outward impact, it is God's word and it is still to be proclaimed. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. God's word is not worthless just because worthless people refuse to obey it. God's word is not worthless because worthless people refuse to obey it. That is extremely important. Quitting is the problem. Quitting is the issue in our society and in the church always. So in your note sheet then, True teaching confronts false doctrine in the church and promotes true doctrine. And underneath that, three vital keys to not quitting. If you want to promote truth in your own life, then you need to deal with the issue of quitting. If you've given up witnessing to others because you can't be bothered, it never does any good, then you're a quitter. And if you want to stop that quitting, you better do something about it. If you aren't serving in church because you've given up, or you don't want to serve in church, or you feel it's no point to doing it, then quitting has to be confronted. Now, there are three vital keys to not quitting here in this text. And we were looking at the first one at the end of the sermon last week. Key number one in your note sheet under letter A. Urge is parakaleo. Write down what it means. He says, I'm urging you. So write down what this means. Come close beside and to call. To get in the face, to come alongside, to get in the face, to call. Call someone out. That's key number one. He's urging. He's apostolically commanding. He's begging Timothy. This is apostolic begging. Everyone in the church for 2,000 years who is walking with the Lord and is ready to quit because of the trash going on in our churches needs to obey this urge. Paul is not just commanding Timothy, he's commanding all of us who are tempted to quit because of the hopeless, discouraging mess that's among God's people. Paul gets in Timothy's face and demands that he stands his ground. 
That command from Paul is apostolic. It's no less to you and I. We don't have a right to quit because we don't like something. In the church, under key number one, letter B then, let's pursue this a little closer. Parakoleo from para, the first part of the word means from close beside, it's in your note sheet, and koleo to call. This is a powerful beseeching and urging. A powerful beseeching and urging. Paul is yelling out of this text. Paul is yelling. I'm begging, I'm urging you to quit. A person can even disobey an apostle. It's amazing, isn't it? You would think that if Paul came into our church and said, I'm going to analyze Eastside Bible Church, I'm going to start with the elders and work my way down, and I'm going to have personal meetings with all of you, the apostle himself, with a direct line connection, inspiration-wise, to God in heaven, and then analyzed all of us, and then starting with the elders on down, and then gave us strong commands ordering us. You know, you don't have to have a membership meeting when you've got an apostle, right? Elders are out of the picture. Elders are not equal to apostles. When the apostles died, God created the eldership to replace the apostles, but not with the same authority. An apostle is a dictator. When you see Paul giving orders to the Corinthians, he doesn't call for an elder meeting and a membership meeting. He just does it. Paul commanding Timothy does not guarantee that it's going to be obeyed. Paul could be walking around and interviewing all of us this week. And then finally leans forward at your home and gives you an order, a direct spiritual command. You could just say, I don't care if Paul's telling me that. I don't care if he's telling me to my face, I'm not going to do that. Say, oh, no one would ever do it. We do it when he gives it to us in writing. Why wouldn't we do it to his face? This is why this is so energized, that word urged in verse 3 is so energized with passion. He's scared. He's upset. He knows that Timothy can really resist all of this and quit and walk away. Timothy had it in his tool bag to quit. Letter B in your note sheet. Paul begs Timothy to not quit on the Ephesian church. That's sad that he's got to do that. There must have been something that Timothy said to him in writing that alarmed Paul. This is going to happen. So he's apostolically ordering Timothy and us to not quit. Paul is saying, when the going gets tough, the tough stay in and battle churches while the cowards flee. He's telling him, don't quit, don't be a coward. This is a real problem for Timothy. Look at 2 Timothy 1. This acknowledgement of Paul's problem, this is inherent to him as a leader, a pastor at the Ephesian church. 2 Timothy 1. He has to tell him again not to quit. Verse 6, for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. He quit. He's, he's telling him to rekindle the gift. He stopped teaching and being a pastor there, I guess. So did the command in 1 Timothy 1.3 hold with Timothy? No, it didn't. He ignored it and he quit. 
And then he confronts Timothy on his quitting and basically broadsides him with massive confrontation in verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of cowardice. Delia, timidity is cowardice. He just called Timothy a coward. Christians who quit are cowards. They quit for unbiblical reasons. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. So it's very easy. You can write under letter B. It's very easy to disobey. Very easy to disobey even an apostolic command. Just think how much easier it is to disobey an elder or a pastor. See, at least with elders and pastors, one could say, well, that's just his opinion. I don't have to obey him. Paul is an inspired apostle. By the way, are you supposed to obey elders and pastors or just the apostles? That's a good question. I mean, is this a cult? We talked about that last Sunday morning, and we'll talk about it a little again today. Is it a cult when Christian leaders who aren't apostles order you around? Is that a cult or is that biblical? Look at Hebrews 13. I'll let you answer this one for yourself. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 17, talking to Jewish believers. In verse 1, let the love of the brethren continue. In 13, 1, look at verse 17. Obey your leaders. Is that a command? So you'd obey the elders and anyone teaching in this pulpit, right? Mm -hmm. Not just obey, but... Because you could grudgingly obey outwardly, but you should submit to them. Submission is a word for submitting from the heart. I, obey is a word that means to obey through persuasion. I'm to persuade you from the word of God and you're to obey us. Is it a blank check? You're to obey me on everything? No, just as I teach the word of God. I'm not here to tell you what car to buy, how to spend your money. When it talks about leaders, it's not political leaders in verse 17. These are church leaders who are following the word of God. If I tell you to do something that is apart from the word of God, you're not to do it. That means you've got to know the Word of God to know whether I'm telling you to obey something that's in the Word of God or not. Christians who do not obey their leaders who do teach them the Word will serve with grief. Look at verse 17. Let them serve you with joy and not with grief. When do we have joy? When you obey the Word of God. And when would we have grief? When you do not obey the Word of God. To obey brings joy to a godly leader, and to not obey brings grief. The word for grief is to groan with anguish. Why would this be unprofitable for you? He said this will be unprofitable for you if your leaders are groaning under the pressure of anguish. I'll tell you why. Paul said it in 1 Timothy 1. If you have godly leaders that are teaching you the word of God, and you continuously disobey and ignore what they're teaching you, you will lose those teachers. They will quit. You lose the profit. Quitting is a problem. In the pulpits and in the pew. Look at Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, since you're in the book of Hebrews. This is a last days problem especially. This is a plague in the last days. Christians just quit. They have no conscience problem with that. No problem. 
We're supposed to, in verse 24 of Hebrews 10, verse 24, we're to, as believers, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's not come, sit, listen, and leave, is it? We're to consider constantly, train ourselves and know how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds in the fellowship of believers. It's not sitting at church. It's helping each other to grow in love and moral behavior. The opposite of that is in the last days, in verse 25, not forsaking our assembling together. This is the condition of the church in the last days. As is the habit of some. In the time of Hebrews, there were people that claimed to be Christians and they just abandoned the assembling together. And he says, but encourage one another. And then he says, all the more is the day of the Lord is drawing near. So as you see the day drawing near, which means we can see it drawing near, which we do today. Especially we should not be forsaking the assembling together. Why? Because we'll be tempted to. Why? Because there's apostasy everywhere. In the church. Our churches are going to be piled up and are filled with false believers. And godly leaders and godly Christians are going to say, I've had enough. I'm done with this. Nobody listens, nobody cares. From Jeremiah to the book of Hebrews, it's the same thing. Quitting is the problem that stops the confrontation of truth and the, the, the promotion of truth and the confrontation of error. So go back to 1 Timothy 1. You've got to ask yourself, why do so many pastors stay just for a few years and they quit, 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 just rotate around? Because they've had it. Just like Timothy. They give all their spiritual reasons. God has called me. I've done my work here. My work here is finished. Spiritual gobbledygook. No, they're getting out of town because they're tired of it. They can't be bothered. They want new blood. It's like finding another wife or another husband. I need another spouse. Why? Because I'm tired of the old one. Same thing. So back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. So here's our principle in your note sheet. In purple there. The tempting urge to want to quit service. The tempting urge to want to quit service and fellowship, quit service and fellowship, in the last days will be rampant. This explains why people come and they go in our churches. Why more go than come. Why they stick around and then they leave. Anybody ever remember John Haleko? Blind guy, so to speak. Um, he died last year, I think it was. And... Uh, he left. He said, God's call to me is to just spend a little time in a church and then go to another one. I'm God's emissary to churches. He's told me just to spend a little time. My time's done, John. Time's done with Eastside Bible Church. On to the next one. Is that in the Bible? No. Is endurance in the Bible? Back in that Jeremiah 15, verse 16, did God say to Jeremiah, spend a little time, then rotate on to the next nation? Did Jeremiah say, I have endured reproach? Is endurance a virtue? Yes. John Haleko made endurance a vice and quitting a virtue. There's nothing good about quitting. You can't put a twist on it. Can't make it nice, okay? We want to 
ease our conscience. So we say, well, there's stuff in this church that I have to quit over. Well, if there are biblical reasons for quit, quitting, and we'll find out what those are, then sure, I'll be right with you on that. And I'll give you those biblical reasons for quitting. Letter C in your note sheet. Timothy and we have the resources from God to stay and fight for truth. We have the resources. Timothy and we have the resources from God to stay and fight for truth. In every church we're in, we have the resources. That's why I spent so much time in verse 2. We have the power of grace, the power of mercy, and the power of peace from the Holy Spirit to stay and follow truth. This is called enduring. This is what a true believer does. Even a godly believer who quits is then backslidden. Look at Philippians 1. Endurance is a virtue, folks. How did we ever get to the idea that quitting a church or quitting on God is a virtue? Uh, it's kind of strange to me. How about you? I think that's as strange as Anthony Holmes holding up a gun lock and saying, this is how we stop all the violence in our city. We just... Knock on doors and say, are you a gangbanger? Yes. Are you an active gangbanger? Yes. Uh, could you please put this lock on your gun and never use it again? Oh, sure. Thanks so much, Anthony. A quitting Christian is a contradiction of terms, like a law-abiding gangbanger. Endurance is part and parcel of a true conversion. Verse 5 is true conversion. Philippians 1.5, in view of your participation in the gospel, Paul is saying you are believers. And he says, I'm confident. He has faith. He has assurance of something. Knowing the Philippian church, that he who began a good work in you, that's conversion, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's endurance. That's the perseverance of the saints. A true believer doesn't quit on the gospel. A true believer doesn't quit on the body of Christ. A true believer doesn't quit on walking by faith. They can backslide and rebel, but God will chastise them. Back to 1 Timothy 1.3. And a godly believer, no matter how much he's tempted to quit, will remain in the most suffering of circumstances and ministries. So that's key number one. God has given every one of us a command to not quit. If you have quitting on your mind, you had better have a good biblical reason for that. And the biblical reason is not, I feel God is leading me to go somewhere else. That is a spiritually hypocritical, nonsense statement that is not founded on the Bible and simply is an excuse and covering for I've had enough of this church and want to get out. We can't confront error and promote truth on a bed of quitting ease. So key number two, Paul then gets in his face with this begging and orders him to remain. In your note sheet at the bottom, prosmeno, from pros, which is towards, and meno, remain. He's telling him to remain towards, stick it out, don't quit. To remain is the opposite in Greek of the word quitting. To cleave unto. Stay.
Is Paul a cult leader telling Timothy to stay in the Ephesian church? Is he a cult leader? Do I have the right then as a pastor, teacher of this church to tell every last one of us in this room, you have no right to leave, you need to remain? Well, what about if the church is bad? Okay, yay. Yeah, what about what if it is? Go on the backside. Fact. Whether it's the one in the pulpit or the pew, there are actually only five reasons in the Bible to leave a church. There are only five reasons to leave a church. I'm not going to give them to you here. I'll give them to you down at the bottom next time. Go all the way down the note sheet to letter E. One is it biblical to not remain. Five biblical reasons to leave a church, and I'll give those to you next time. Not today. Today it's about remaining, not quitting. And if you don't know what those five reasons are, then how could you ever assess currently that you have a right to quit? Right? Yes. Yeah, he's quitting and suffering. Well, that's really the issue, isn't it? The ultimate issue is why Timothy or anybody quits, like I said in the introduction. is because, why, why do we quit voting? Why do we quit believing our leaders? Because we're suffering under their lies. And so what happens at churches, like and with Timothy, is he's suffering under these leaders in verses 3 to 7 that are just wreaking havoc in the church. They're wicked, apostate, false teachers. And they first need to be confronted and run out. You don't quit first. You run the false teaching out. He's suffering terribly. He's a godly pastor. I find it absolutely amazing and shocking that anyone who proclaims that Christians should stay put in their churches except for five biblical reasons would brand such a call to commitment as cultic. I'm shocked by that. How perverted is it to call a mandate of perseverance and endurance a cult doctrine. How perverted is it for a believer to think any call to remain in a church is a godless character quality, making quitting virtuous? When did we have to be ashamed of remaining? I have been shamed by Christian leaders in the IFCA for decades as to why I'm still here. And it goes like this. Are you still there? Oh, that's nice. Thank you. John, I think it's time to move. Virtue of quitting. I rarely have had anyone outside this church rejoice over the commitment of endurance to stay put in one church. This has been seen as a loser position in a loser church in a loser city and only an idiot would stake put. Endurance is evil and quitting is good. That's satanic. In your note sheet, then, the reality is most pastors demonstrate to churches that it's okay to quit for personal reasons. That's what pastors demonstrate. I wonder what, over here on this board, I wonder what the reasons were why these guys all left. What was their biblical reason for quitting? 45 years, the first one in the upper left hand, two and a half years, Tunstra. 
York was here three or four years. Clayton, I think it was three years. Um, basically two to eight years, all of them. The one next to me apostatized, Mark Hagen. He's a doctor in London. Why'd they quit? Why'd they quit? It's okay for pastors to quit, but everybody else can't. So we say, you need to stay put. And then when you don't, I quit. Let's write under letter B to remove all these type of statements. God has called me to move on. No, he has not. I never see, hear anyone say, God's called me to endure. It's always God has called me to move on. Don't you ever use this line with me or anyone else. My work here is finished. Would you have a voice from God? As long as these pews are empty and souls aren't getting saved, how did our work get finished? Or this one, God opened a door for me to go somewhere else. Really? How do you know Satan didn't open that door? You wouldn't unless your only reason for leaving is a biblical one. Those are not biblical reasons to leave. So people in the pews learn it's okay to quit on a church for the most personal of reasons because that's what the guys in the pulpit do. And that brings up restaurants. And this is extremely important. I want you to fill in the seven marks of a restaurant that's a great restaurant. You've got seven lines. I'm going to give you the seven marks of a great restaurant. Number one, comfortable accommodations. If the restaurants of this country do not have these seven things, they will die. Number one, comfortable accommodations. That includes proper heating and AC. Number two, quality affordable menu. Number three, Warm, friendly service. Professional. Comfortable accommodations, number one. Quality, affordable menu, number two. Warm, friendly service, number three. Number four, and we're all going to gag on this one, ample parking. And in a nice area. Ample parking in a nice area. You ever drive to a restaurant you heard about and you're driving around with your honey and you say, oh, I don't know about this area if we should go to this restaurant or not. Ample parking in a nice area. Restaurant on 106th Street, that Cajun-type restaurant, it's dying. You know why it's dying? Because the city and the restaurant is allowing bums to congregate at the front door. Nobody's going to go into a restaurant when I've got to pass all those criminal elements right there. It's a violation of... Being in a nice area. Number five, great food. Great food. Tastes good, makes me feel good. Great food. Tastes good, makes me feel good. Number six, friendly atmosphere. Friendly atmosphere. Customers sitting around me are nice. They're not too close to me, but they're nice. I don't want any shouting in a restaurant. I don't want psychos in here. I, want, I brought my family here. There's a restaurant. I want people to be nice around me, but, but don't get too close. Nice, but not too close. 
Number seven. Makes the customer feel like the center of the universe. Makes the customer feel like the center of the universe. Comfortable accommodations, quality affordable menu. Number three, warm, friendly service. Number four, ample parking in a nice area. Number five, great food. Tastes good, makes me feel good. Number six, friendly customers, but they keep a distance. Number seven, I want to feel like I'm the center of the universe when I'm in a restaurant. A restaurant better have all seven of those or forget it. I read those from a restaurant magazine on the internet. If the restaurant doesn't have all seven of those, they're going to go somewhere else. And why not? For a restaurant, it's all about being served, not serving others. If one doesn't get one's needs met in a restaurant, I'm going to go somewhere else and it's really easy to go somewhere else. Why would anyone remain in a restaurant that's bad and doesn't serve me right? Those are great reasons to go to a restaurant. Great reasons. But none of those seven are the marks of a great church. Hello? Yet I have found many believers in our country think a church should be marked by those seven things. Willow Creek was founded on the very idea of meet the needs of your customers who come to church. That's what a restaurant is to do. We're not a restaurant. Our church has been criticized by visitors over the year for violating some of those marks. Too hot in here. Too hard to find parking. Nasty area. I want to feel good by the menu that's dished up, not convicted. People are not friendly enough. People are too close to me. I want friendly, but not too close. And I should be the center of the universe of this church. Nobody has visited me in my home for three months. Hmm. What's wrong with those seven marks of a restaurant, folks? Look at those seven. What's wrong with them? Here's what's wrong with them. At a restaurant, the customer is the center of the universe. In the church, believers are slaves to others and to Christ. And he is the center of the church, not us. How easy it was for Timothy and today's leaders and believers to quit because the church violated one or more of those rules for restaurants. How easy it is for false teachers and believers to stay in churches after the good die young and quit. God demands perseverance in the face of the worst suffering in a church. God does not demand perseverance in a restaurant when they serve you food that makes your stomach hurt. We are not a restaurant. God basically, in the Bible, tells people who quit to stop quitting. One last example, and we're out of here so we can go to a restaurant and use the seven marks that you just learned. Turn to Genesis chapter 16. And by the way, another one we could add is the food comes in a timely manner. Doesn't take too long, right? And church, you never know when that sermon's going to end. Sarah and Hagar. Sarah and Hagar. There were two ladies that really had it out for each other, right? You know the story. Sarah doesn't have anyone. Sarah in verse 2 of Genesis 16 says, The Lord's prevented me from having children. I want you to go into Hagar. 
Abraham, being the moral dullard that he was, said, oh, okay, I'll go have relations with another woman then. Talk about how paganized Abraham was at this point. He should have said, you're a foolish woman and we're not trusting in God by such a voice. So he does it, obeys her. So, verse 3, Abraham lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Abraham's wife, Sarah, took Hagar, the Egyptian, and her maid, gave her to her husband. I guess he was, he was kind of like uh, dragging his feet and messing around with his wife's maid. So she had to take the bull by the horns and shove his, her maid into his presence to get him to do what she wants done. Because God is not in any of this. So he messes around with Hagar in verse 4. And as soon as she had a baby, that was the deal, wasn't it? Sarah wanted you, she wanted a, an adoptive baby by another woman, right? That was the deal. So as soon as she has the baby, now Sarah hates her. This is messed up in verse 4. And then Sarah turns on Abraham. I think, I think this couple needs some counseling. Look at verse 5. May the wrong done me be upon you. Oh, that's nice. Thank you so much for that. You told me to go in and mess around with her, and now you're blaming me for doing it. I gave my maid into your arms, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. This is your fault. May the Lord judge between me and me. Well, you wouldn't even call it on God, Sarah, before this. This is your all your own doing. This is injustice. This is carnality. This is fornication. This is adultery. Call it whatever you want. You don't come along in verse 5 and say God's now in on this scenario. Abraham is the classic carnal passive husband in verse 6. Behold, your maid is in your hands to do what you want. Do what's good in your sight. Well, what, what's good in, 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 in Sarah's sight is to start treating her horribly, so horribly that she fled in verse 6. If anyone had a right to quit, it was Hagar. Didn't she? We've been treated wrong at Eastside Bible Church. I have a right to quit. Really? Angel of the Lord comes along, finds Hagar way out in the desert, verse 7. Talks to Hagar in verse 8, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? He knew where she was from and she knew where he was going. <coughs> and she says, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarah. No excuse making. She was treated horribly. Really bad. Total injustice. She didn't even have anything to do with it, really. Sarah forced her on Abraham. If there's anyone innocent in this story, it's Hagar. And the angel pats her on the hand and on the head and says, You've been done bad. You have a right to quit. What does the angel of the Lord say in verse 9? Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. That wicked woman... This is the angel of the Lord talking. This is God talking. No reasons. No five reasons why you have to return. Just do it. Return to your master and submit to that wicked woman, Sarah. This is the way God is with us. Quitting is never a virtue. No matter how unjust the behavior foisted upon us in 
a church unless God's word tells us a reason to quit. We enjoy the virtue of endurance and we stay put. Key number two. Number one, the Apostle Paul is ordering you to stay. Key number two, God in his word begs us to never quit. We're not a restaurant. What silly boys and girls we are when we think we should be a restaurant. By the way, one last thing in your note sheet, in conclusion, letter C. Do you notice that Paul doesn't give Timothy a reason to remain? If you went back there, you'd see that Paul never gave him a reason. The angel doesn't give Hagar a reason. Just like how God dealt with Hagar, he simply says, remain to Timothy. God doesn't have to give you and I a reason every time he's telling us to do it. He's telling us to just do it. Just do it. Just do it. It's a dark day and age when we won't obey unless it works out for us. It's a dark day and age when we will only stay put if there's no trouble. It's a dark day and age when we decide when it's time for us to leave. It's a dark day and age when endurance is considered a cult characteristic and quitting is considered godly. A very, very dark day. Where are the soldiers who are willing to stand in the gap? The men and women, the few, the humble, not the Marines, the Messiah ones. With the weapon of God's word, regardless of consequences, suffering and difficulty in a local church, are willing to stay by God's grace, power, peace, and mercy, I will stand in the gap until the last man at Eastside Bible Church is standing, and I will obey my master Jesus Christ through his apostle Paul until God in his word shows me I have a biblical reason to leave. Where are those soldiers these days? Some are in front of me. Others aren't. Most long since have left the hallowed grounds of Eastside Bible Church because it was time to quit because after all, what's a person to do when they can't take it anymore? Quitting is a virtue to most today, Lord. But your word says enduring in the face of suffering is the real virtue. You're very short on reasons in the Bible, I've noticed. You just tell us to obey, and you don't have to tell us why. You just say do it. Who are we as slaves to demand reasons before we will obey? You didn't give a reason to Jeremiah. You told him to turn and extract what is holy and right. No reasons why. You didn't tell Hagar the reason to return to a godless Sarah who was making her life miserable. Just do it. You didn't tell Timothy reasons why he has to stick around a church that has allowed horrific false teachers to run roughshod over him. Paul simply said, remain. And you don't have to give any of us in this room reasons why we're to stay put and do your will. We're simply called to obey for the glory of God, the power of the church, for the refutation of error, 
and the promotion of truth until you return. In our Savior and Lord, Master Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen.